Our scripture reading today is from Romans 8, 1 through 6. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. This is God's word. Uh, Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, It's good to see so many of you here in the dog days of summer. Uh, So uh, we uh, are grateful uh, that we can be together this morning. For the rest of the summer, which basically runs to the beginning of the school year, which is, I think, in the middle of August, so about the third week of August, we're going to be, for the next five weeks anyway, just taking Romans chapter 8 and and working through it slowly, just verse by verse, kind of just take our time, five sermons out of one chapter in the Bible, and there are really a number of reasons uh, for us doing this, okay? The first is that this is one of the most important and most beautiful passages in all of the Bible. Okay, reason number two is that it deals with some of the themes uh, that we've been talking about for the past six weeks in our series on Union with Christ. And so it kind of expounds on a lot of the things we've been discussing for uh, a few weeks now. Uh, reason number three is just a personal thing. We typically, and if you've noticed this, this is true, we typically blaze through books in our series uh, and, and it will be just, I thought it would just be nice for us to slow down, go verse by verse, help you see some of the logic in the way that Paul's working through, the arguments he's working through here in this passage. And then reason number four is that in the fall, beginning in August, we're going to be doing a series out of the book of Proverbs. And the, just the reality of preaching through Proverbs is it's going to feel, feel a whole lot more topical in nature. And so we just want to take some time here at the end of the summer to just take this chapter, begin at verse 1, work our way all the way to the end. Okay? Now, I want to jump right in. Uh, and, and not do a whole lot of introduction this morning. And so this morning, looking at these fir- first six verses in Romans 8, and immediately I hope, as, as Brenda read that to us, you, you notice something about these verses. Paul is making an argument. And I know that because of the way he uses the preposition for, to link the verses together, okay? I've capitalized and italicized the fours for you in your worship folder so that you can see this for yourself. And, and the best translation of that, of that Greek word is probably something like because. So verse 2 begins with this, this preposition for. So verse 2 is the reason for verse 1. Verses 3 and 4 are the reason for verse 2. And so on, four times in six verses, Paul using this preposition for. Verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 6 all begin with it. And so there are four gars, it's a Greek word gar, in this passage. I have four points this morning, okay, uh, corresponding with those things. And here's the way I would, I would put this before you. These verses, Romans 8, 1 through 6, and this is just reflected in your outline, offer us a truth that brings a power into our lives that requires a practice that produces a fruit. 
So there's a truth that brings a power into our lives that requires a practice that then produces fruit. That's what we're going to look at this morning, all of that right here from these six verses. So let's just begin with this incredible gospel truth in verse 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now what you need to know is that Romans 8, 1 comes at the end of Romans chapter 7. And Romans chapter 7 strikes a very different tone. Because in Romans 7, Paul is working through, he's, he's describing for us in great detail his own personal struggle with sin throughout his life. And so he says things like this. He, one of the famous statements he makes there in Romans 7 is he says, you know, the good things that I want to do, the good that I want to be true of my life, those are the very things I can't seem to figure out how to do. The good I want to do that I don't do, but all the bad things that I wish I wouldn't do, those are the very things that I do. And so Paul's just in the midst of this wrestling through of his own heart, peering into, you know, what's going on in his own life. And he says, all the good I wish I could do, I'd end up not doing that stuff. And the bad things that I don't want to do, those are the very things that I do. And I wonder, anybody else feel that way this week? I mean, if we just took a moment this morning and said, if I just said, okay, Make a list of all of the good things that you wanted to do this week that you weren't able to do or that you, or that you just refused to do. Okay, go. Okay, now let's make a list of all of the, you know, of the things that you know you shouldn't do that were the very things that defined your week this week. How long would that list be? How extensive? How exhaustive? Right? And so at the end of a week like that, facing that kind of struggle with that success rate. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, you know, this is the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, this is one of the greatest men that's ever lived who describes this. And so what was true of him is probably more true of us. And so at the end of a week like this, at the end of a week of just struggling through your own moral failures and sins, what's it feel like? You feel condemned, don't you? I mean, if I, if I was to guess, most of us would have to say that at the end of a week where, it, like, my, I just got, I got my butt beat this week. I mean, I just got beat up this week. And at the end of it, it's hard not to come to the end of a week like that where you just feel like you've been killed all week long and not feel condemned. I mean, you know, Paul's making an argument here in Romans. Verses, you know, I mean, excuse me, chapters 3, 4, and 5, he's saying, you're declared righteous in Jesus Christ, and yet you come, you know, to the end of chapter 7, and you experience this reality of your struggle with sin, and even in light of everything Paul said, it's hard not to feel practically, on a day-to-day basis, condemned. And that's why Romans 8.1 is so important, because Paul abruptly, and it's very, if you read, it's very abrupt, he abruptly speaks into his struggle in Romans chapter 7 with Romans chapter 8 verse 1 and says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, I, I met with somebody who, who's new to our church this week and I, I just asked him, you know, how's it going? What are your impressions? And I loved how they answered. Uh, the man looked at me and he just said, all I can tell you is, is what you're doing, it's good news. It's great news the stuff you get up and tell us every week. And I'm here to tell you, I've got good news for you this morning. And it's just this. God's not mad at you. God's not aggravated with you. He's not annoyed with you. 
He's not weary of you. He's not grown tired of you. Zephaniah 3, 16 and 17 says that God delights over you with singing. Do you believe that? Do you feel that? Does that work its way into the practical day-to-day life you live? Because let let me clue you in on something. If you're struggling... Deep down, wherever the struggle in your life as a Christian might be, deep down, if you dig deep enough, you'll discover that this is the real struggle. I mean, this is where the rubber meets the road. This, this route to live with the courage to believe that this could be true. That God would not be mad at you. Now, we do a, a discipleship program in this church called Disciple by Grace, and my favorite Disciple by Grace question It's towards the beginning of the material, and you're prompted to ask, is God mad at you when you sin? Nearly every person who is new to the gospel who goes through that that material says, well, yes. But let me ask you, if the answer is yes to that question, then is God ever not mad at you? Are you ever not sinning? See, I'm on Twitter, and I... One of my favorite guys to follow on Twitter is Scotty Smith, and he put it this way. He says, if you've got a doghouse theology, that is, if you believe uh, that every time you do something wrong, God puts you in his doghouse, then he said, are you so arrogant as to assume that you're ever out of it? Right? And so the Apostle Paul says, in light of Romans 7, in the midst of deep struggles with sin, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, but, Pay attention to the qualification. There's no condemnation for who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. That's language of that's the language of union with Christ. This is what we've been talking about for weeks now. And so if you're here this morning and you're, you've not turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, if you're here and, you've, and you said, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I don't think I'm a Christian, if, or if you're here and you say, I know I'm not a Christian and I don't want to have anything to do with that Christianity stuff, then I've got to be a friend to you and say, then God, if that is true, if you're here and you're not a Christian, then what I've said about there being no condemnation is not true for you. God is very mad at you. You've offended him. You've risen up in rebellion against him. And so I would not be your friend if I didn't tell you that. But the good news of the gospel is, is if you're here and you turn to Jesus, then despite the record of your rebellion and sin, God would declare over your life, there is now no condemnation. God's not mad at you. If you're here and your faith is in Jesus, he's not annoyed with you. Uh, the, the, he's not playing a game of whack-a-mole with you, waiting for you to stick your head out of the hole so he can just beat you. Right? That's the metaphor for what I believe to be true of God, Mike, growing up. You know what whack-a-mole, y'all remember that? You go to the fair and the little dude pops his head out of the hole and you just like killing stuff, you know, for 30 seconds and it's awesome. That was God for me. Just waiting for me to peep out so he could just smack me. That's not him. That's not true. Now, the reason is in verse 2. So the first four there. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now let me summarize that, that verse and then we'll talk a little bit more. The summary would be something like this. What Paul's teaching us is, is that God's love, there is no condemnation because God's love for us is no longer based on our performance, but on God's free grace. That's why God's not mad at you. See, most of the commentators say the law of the spirit of life here in this verse refers to the message of the gospel of grace. And the law of sin and death, then, is what the Bible calls 
law-keeping or being under the law or religion or moralism. It's the idea in most religions of the world that, that life goes something like this, that your moral performance leads to God's verdict over your life. So if you perform well, if you're good, then God will love and accept you. If you perform poorly, if you're bad, in other words, then God will condemn you. And what Paul is saying is, is that the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ has, set, has blown that entire system up. God, God has set us free from this whole way of relating to him according to our performance. In Matthew 21, for example, Jesus looks at the religious types, the, the Pharisee uh, types, the guys that are the really moral, good people, and he makes this s- statement that it's absolutely startling. He says, Matthew 21, 31, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom of God ahead of you, good moral people. That's absolutely scandalous. And they killed him for it. I mean, how, how is that, you know, how does that work? And the answer is that whether you get into the kingdom of heaven or not has nothing to do with your moral record, good or bad. The gospel blows up this whole performance-driven, performance-based approach to God. Performance doesn't lead to the verdict. we're going to see is that the verdict leads to performance. So you see, the gospel truth in Romans 8, 1 and 2, in light of Romans 7, teaches us that we are at the same time sinful, that's Romans 7, and also justified, that's Romans 8, 1. And so this was the spiritual breakthrough that led to the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther came to the realization that what God teaches us in the scriptures is that we are simultaneously guilty but also loved, right? Okay, get this, not guilty and condemned, but also not, not guilty and loved. We are guilty but loved. Does that make sense? We are sinful but yet also righteous. And, you, you know, so you, how can that be? How is that possible? There is no condemnation for those who are what, does Paul say? In Christ Jesus. Well, this is what we've been talking about, isn't it? We've changed locations. God finds us in Jesus. And so Romans 8, 3 says that that despite all of our moral failings, there is a righteousness that can be ours that is the opposite of the condemnation Paul talks about in verse 1. That that, that means to be approved and accepted by God, but it's not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. We are declared righteous, Paul says. And that's the truth. See, that's the truth. This gospel truth that we talk about every week, this passage offers us that the gospel sets us free from the law. But here's what I want you to see. When it begins to sink down into your heart, something begins to happen. See, when this gospel truth becomes real in the heart, and when you begin to experience the love and the grace of God, even in the midst of your struggles with sin, it unleashes a new spiritual power into your life. And so this gospel truth goes something like this. Your performance does not lead to the verdict, but... The verdict of God always leads to performance. God doesn't love me because I do good works, but when I begin to realize and see how much he loves me, it produces good works. And so there's a deeper meaning here to Romans 8, chapter t- verse, verse 2. And that is that the law of sin and death refers there 
to the natural inclination or bent of the heart towards evil that is now being rooted out and replaced in all who believe in Jesus Christ by a new inclination and bent and desire towards obedience. So when the truth of Romans 8.1 begins to be real in your heart, the Spirit comes, Paul says, and the Spirit begins to become operative in your life so that the law of the Spirit of life begins to replace the law of sin and death. That's what Paul's teaching. Okay? Now, Romans 8.3 then. You see in Romans 8.3, that verse also begins with the second four. And so we're getting deeper into Paul's argument here, okay? The argument is just this. God's not mad at you. Why? Because he no longer relates to you based on your performance. Why? Because Romans 8.3, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin to condemn sin in the flesh. So do you see what Paul's doing? It's very important to me that I get you inside this passage so that you can begin to see how Paul's working this out. Romans 8.3 is the reason for the truth of Romans 8.2, which is the reason for Romans 8.1. Does that make sense? This would be where a nod or, you know, some not would be very helpful to me. Okay, good, good. I think maybe 10% of you get it. We'll keep going. We'll keep preaching. Keep doing it. No. Uh, so just interactive is good, okay? Okay, now, notice in these verses, too, what Paul's saying. He's saying there's a truth that brings a power. Romans 8, at the end of the day, is really a passage about how to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. So everything Paul's going to say about our sanctification, that is our ongoing process of becoming more like Jesus, of putting to death sin, living to God, living towards God, all this process of sanctification, everything he says about how sanctification work, works flows out of and is rooted in the doctrine of justification by faith. That we are declared righteous because of Jesus' work on our behalf, okay? And so what Paul says, we got, let's get into to Romans 8, 8, 3 for a minute. Paul says, God is not mad at you. If your faith is in Jesus, he's not angry with you, he's not annoyed at you. There is no condemnation because he no longer relates to you on the basis of your moral performance. Because, verse 3, Jesus was condemned in your place. That's why you're not condemned. The reason you're not condemned is not because God looks at your sin and says, ah, it's no big deal. The reason you're not condemned is because Jesus is condemned in your place. He went to the cross for you. He took upon himself your sin, and the result is he gives you his righteousness. That's justification. Now, when this truth of justification comes into your life, it begins to destroy, we see there, your flesh. You see that? The, he puts to death flesh. He condemns sin in The flesh, Paul says, so in your struggle against sin, what you're working against and what you're putting to death, the Bible says, is this, whatever Paul means by this word, flesh. And all throughout this passage in Romans 8, 3, Paul is contrasting the work of the spirit with the work of the flesh in the life of the believer. Okay, so the flesh then is this word the Bible uses to describe our natural inclination towards sin, which really means a natural inclination towards selfishness and preoccupation, self-obsession. Self-focus. See, this, that's the essence of sin, is the sense of being selfish or self-oriented or self-preoccupied. The flesh is the part of our hearts that wants to play the hero. And what Paul's teaching us here in this verse is that only the gospel can deal with the flesh. The law can't. I mean, the problem with the law, the problem with moralism, the problem with performance-driven Christianity or religion is, as Paul puts it here, it's weakened by the flesh. It doesn't work. 
The law is powerless against the flesh. It can't change the heart because it can't come deep enough inside and deal with the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. And the, and the irony is that if, if, if you come or if, you, you know, if you're here and you say, I, that whole moralism thing, I, I, I understand it. It's what I grew up in. It's, I've experienced that in churches. The irony is, is that moralism does nothing to decrease um, the, the, the focus of the heart on itself. In reality, moralism actually increases self-focus and self-preoccupation. And so the way the law gets you to obey is by leveraging your selfishness and motivating you either through fear or pride. And so the Christianity that I grew up with as a boy was full of people who were very, very good. They were obedient. They did all the right things. They obeyed all the rules, but they were arrogant and smug and condescending to people who didn't meet their standards. Because you see, the flesh was still intact in, in, in operating full full force and moralism can't make you a good i'm sorry i need moralism can make you a good person but it can't make you humble and joyful and patient with people the law can't go there there are no laws can you imagine my dad's my dad's a judge can you imagine dad having to prosecute laws against anxiety i'd be in jail for the rest of my life are you kidding me right can you imagine this? Can you imagine a law against joylessness? Well, I did the right thing, but you weren't joyful. You know, we're going to lock you up. It's ridiculous. That's what, absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Why? Because the law, the law can't go there. The law can't get at those things. And the law can motivate you to be obedient. But, the, but only by increasing your self-focus. So all the time you're doing good, you're actually nurturing the sinful roots in your life. You're nurturing the roots of sin, in all, even in all of your do-gooding. And this is, the, this is what happened. If I could use it as an illustration, I want to walk really, tread really careful because I know this is polarizing. But this is, I think, part of what has come out of what happened at Penn State University. I mean, Joe Paterno is not a bad guy. He's a good guy. But even good guys can become monsters if being a good guy is what's most important to them. See, Joe Paterno's moral failure was being more concerned about his, himself and his reputation than he was protecting children. It doesn't cancel out all the good he did otherwise. It just reveals what his real motivation was the whole time. So you see... This is the problem with the law. And in order to obey God from the heart, motiv- motivated by love and not selfishness, what has to happen is your heart has to become drained of all of its self-preoccupation, all of its self-focus. So the power to break sin's hold in your life, then, is the gospel. The power to break sin's hold. If the law can't do it, what can? The gospel can. And what we see Paul teaching is the power to break sin's hold in your life is that you live loved. Jesus was condemned so that righteousness might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 4. But the big question is what the statement in Romans 8, 4 means. Is it referring just to justification or is it referring just to sanctification? And I think the answer is both. And the clue is the qualifying statement at the end of verse 4. Those, so the righteous requirements of the law fully met in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that sounds a lot like Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 to me, where God says, the law can't change your heart, but he promises to come to give us new hearts, to remove the heart of stone and to replace it with the heart of flesh and to give us the spirit. And what does he say there in Ezekiel 36, the spirit will do? When the spirit comes, you can see it right there in your worship folder. He causes us to walk in God's statutes and to be careful to obey his rules. And so the spirit is the solution to the problem of the law. The spirit takes the law and it writes it on the heart. It comes inside where the law couldn't go and it brings a new power and a new inner heart dynamic for obedience. And so what does it mean then to walk in the spirit, not the flesh? Well, it means that you bring your whole life in line with the truth of God's love for you in Christ. To live and to struggle against sin and to deal with your moral failures, you never lose sight of the truth. There's no condemnation, right? To walk in the Spirit means you get up every day and you begin the day. The first thought in your mind is there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. And as that begins to sink down into your heart, you find a new power and a new inclination towards obedience. And so the power to break sin's hold in your life is to live loved. And that means to walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. To keep your whole life in line with the truth of the gospel. To keep justification and sanctification in the right order. So that you don't fall back under, you know, the law keeping, you know, rules. But how do you do that? So then see point three, verse five. How do you keep the gospel front and center in your life so that it can work its power into your heart? How do you practically on a day-to-day basis walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh? Verse 5 is the answer to that question that's posed there, you know, that that comes out of the end of verse 4. It's right here, verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, see, so he's picking up, set their mind on the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the spirit or on the things of the spirit. So in order to walk in the spirit, you have to mind the spirit. That word means you intentionally fill your mind and heart with the truth of the gospel. The things of the Spirit is the gospel truth of verses 1 through 4. That God loves me and accepts me apart from anything I've done to deserve his love. That's where the power for spiritual breakthrough comes from. But the way you access that power on a day-to-day basis is you, you mind the Spirit and not the flesh. You daily focus your attention on the truth of God's love for you and refuse to focus all of your attention on yourself. So flesh is... Self-focus, it's self-preoccupation. And so my friend Scotty Smith also tweeted recently this little line that I thought was so, so helpful. He says, the only cure for self-absorption, which is the problem with our lives, which is the root of all of our sinful desires and inclinations, the only cure for self-absorption is Christ's preoccupation. That's what we're talking about. So how do you do that? Let me give you a couple really practical. Let me give you a couple really practical ways you go about doing this. First, pay attention to and give the importance they need to the corporate means of grace. This is why we call baptism a means of grace. It's why we call what we do on a monthly basis when we come to this table to celebrate uh, the meal of Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us, a means of grace. These corporate means of grace are the mechanism by which God helps you to become a person who on a daily basis minds the spirit, not the flesh. 
Pay attention to the word that's preached. Participate in community Bible reading. Go to a community group where other people are going to put the gospel right in your face and beat it into you daily as we talk about, right? Pay attention to the corporate means of grace because they are the very means by which God has established that he began, excuse me, to lead us to a daily minding of the things of the spirit, not of the flesh. But secondly, not only the corporate means of grace, but think about and maybe develop what Ashley and I, some friends of ours have helped us with this, what we call a personal arsenal. You need a personal arsenal of grace that you can go to to help you mine the spirit and the things of the spirit, not the flesh. For me, it's a number of things. Uh, a lot of how I try to do warfare and remind myself of the gospel has to do with stories that I go back to that drive the truth of the gospel home to my heart. Uh, th- stories like Harry Potter, for example. The hero who was born to die, who lays down his life for his friends only to experience a resurrection and through his coming back from the dead destroys evil. <laughs> Does that sound familiar? She's evil, that lady. That, that was a joke. Never mind. Just kidding. I'm moving around. Right? Or, or Duncan, the British army captain at the end of The Last of the Mohicans who gives his life to save the woman he loves, or even something, I mean, it's all, I mean, Thor, in the recent, you know, movie Thor, who dies for his friends and is raised from the dead and ascends back into heaven to be with his father with the promise that he will return again one day. I can't make this stuff up. I'm serious. Right? I remember when we were in college, Ashley called me crying, and this this shows you the woman I'm married to. First of all, that she had gone to see the movie Braveheart. That's the kind of woman you want, man, young man. But she called me crying and said, you've got to go see this movie. And what was great for her was not, you know, all the battle scenes, that stuff's gross, but was the scene where Mel Gibson is wheeled into the courtyard of the palace, strapped to a cross, right? And dies for the sake of bringing freedom to his friends. And she just said, she just wept. So there's, there's stories that you have to begin to develop that, that and go back to that are important ways of how the gospel becomes real to you. But over the years, Ashley and I have begun to build a personal arsenal that we keep around our house, that we try to keep in front of our eyes, that are just there to kind of help us figure out how to, on a practical basis, mind the flesh and not the spirit. So uh, a couple, Ashley's are a whole lot better than mine, so i got to tell you some of hers. And I got permission, don't worry, don't go to her and say, I can't believe he talks about you like this in, this, in the sermon, because I, I did get permission this time. Most of the time I don't, but today I did. And um, so hers are so much better. So, for example, we were uh, not recently we were digging around in the attic and we found uh, an old set of trophies. And when Ashley was young, she went to summer camp three years in a row. And at their summer camp, they uh, gave an, they had an award ceremony at the end of summer camp week. And for two years running, Ashley won the most Christ-like award. And it came with a trophy. <laughs> Is that not awesome? And the only reason she didn't, and listen, I'm married to her, so I know. The only reason she didn't win it five years in a row is because after she won it two years, one of the little girl's parents got pretty upset and made them institute a rule where the same person could not win it two years in a row. And so there's a trophy on the nightstand that says, Ashley Bennett, most Christ-like, that we keep there to remind us how ridiculous that whole thing is. Because that became the narrative of her life. To try to live up to that. Who can live up to that? I mean, where do you have to go if at 18 you're most Christ-like? I mean, there's nowhere to go but down. <laughs> I mean, you know? One of the other ones that she has that's really good is um, 
there's a children's book called The Wizard of Wallaby Wallow. And um, one of the tendencies my wife has uh, is to look at other people. She has this uncanny, it's a spiritual gift, I think, but not really. It's this uncanny ability to look at other people and to see all of the wonderful things about them that aren't true of her and to feel condemned. And what she misses is all the wonderful things about herself. And so there's a story about a mouse who is tired of being a mouse. So he goes to this wizard who has these potions that can change him into something else. And the problem is, is the wizard's mixed up the labels. And so the wizard gives him this, this, this vial of potion and says, here you go. And he says, what's it going to turn me into? He says, I don't, I, can't, I don't really know. So the mouse goes home and starts to imagine all the things. Well, if it turns me into an elephant, you know, then I won't be able to fit in my home. And I really like my home. And if it turns me into this, then I don't really. And what he basically, he goes home and starts to think about this. And he decides, you know what, I kind of like being a mouse. And so he takes the vial back to the, to the uh, wizard and says, um, you know, here, gives it back. And, and the story ends with uh, then all the other animals, when they got tired of being themselves, would come to the wizard and would get potions. And it always worked as long as nobody opened the bottle. And so for Christmas a few years ago, I bought her a little potion vial that was empty, uh, and I had a note on it and said, you know, those of us who know you the best love you just the way you are. And she keeps it on the nightstand to remind her that who God has made her is perfectly fine. She's beautiful. But it's the thing she, see, it's, so what she's doing is she's directly attacking, a, she, I mean, it's the despondency that she can live with at times over comparing herself to other people and seeing all the beautiful things that are true of them. She's, see, it's a way of fighting that, to be mindful of the spirit. See, I, those are silly maybe, but there are ways that, that, that I think what Paul is calling us to here is this active, intentional seeking to mind the spirit, not the flesh, so that the truth of the gospel powerfully comes home to your heart, begins to work in you to produce the obedience that, that Paul talks about here in Romans 8. Now, lastly, okay, I need, to be, I need to be finished. So there's a truth that brings a power into your life that requires a practice, paying attention to the means of grace, developing a personal arsenal that produces fruit. And what is the fruit? See, Romans 8, 6 expands on Romans 8, 5 and explains what happens when you mind the spirit, not the flesh. So look at it there. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What happens? You get life and peace. Now let me apply this in two ways, and then I'm done. Uh, I think part of what Paul means by this is that the gospel, when it comes home to your heart, and you, through the practice of the spiritual disciplines of minding the things of the spirit, not the flesh, it produces an emotional and psychological peace. So on a, on, a, um, on a practical level, the way everybody's normal identity works is every single day, if I could use this analogy, it's almost as if you're in the courtroom. That, that the way our identity works is you're on trial every day, and there's the prosecution, and there's defense, and in everything you do, you're stamping everything in your life, either evidence for the prosecution or evidence for the defense. And some days you feel like you're winning the trial, and other days you feel like you're losing the trial. That's what it means to live according to the flesh and to mind the flesh. It's this constant roller coaster ride, always worried about what others are thinking of you, always wondering, are you doing enough? Have you been good enough? Is everybody in your life happy with you? Is God happy with you? And not ever really being able to be sure. And so no matter how hard you work and no matter how much you do and you can't shake the feeling of condemnation. But do you see what all... It's all about you. I can't ever get out of this. 
You're still walking according to the flesh, minding the flesh. And Paul says that's death. And if you've been there, you can say amen. No. And so if that's you, if, the feel of, if that's the feel of your life, do you see what you're doing? You're, you're looking for a verdict, but you believe that your performance leads to the verdict. But the whole force of this text the whole force of the gospel message is that your performance doesn't lead to the verdict. The verdict leads to performance. The verdict is in. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you know what that means? It means you're out of the courtroom. You're no longer on trial. There's no condemnation for you because Jesus was condemned. He went to trial. He took the trial we deserve so we don't have to go through any more trials. And so to mind the spirit means when you find yourself in the courtroom, When you wake up and you're in the courtroom, you go back to the gospel and you say to your heart, remember, talk to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. Talk to your heart. Don't listen to your heart. You have to say to your heart, what am I doing in this courtroom? Court's adjourned. The verdict's in. And that practice, Paul says, will lead to life and peace. So all of the performance anxiety gets drained from your life, see? All of the self-preoccupation begins to get drained from your life. I was at a conference a few years ago, and one of the speakers put it this way. He said, can you imagine being a person who, when you get criticized, it wouldn't devastate you, but you'd listen to it? Can you imagine not needing to be praised and honored, but not being afraid of it either? This, was, this is, I think, so helpful. He says, can you imagine being the kind of person who, when you go by a mirror or a window... You don't admire what you see, but you, but you don't cringe either. Can you imagine how, that, how free that would feel? Can you imagine the peace you'd experience? You'd be completely free from all self-concern. You, would, you wouldn't be com- constantly comparing yourself to others. You wouldn't be constantly worrying whether you're doing it right or not. Even in your struggles with sin, uh, the gospel could come in and you wouldn't feel condemned. That's what Paul's saying can happen in your life. If you keep the gospel, the focus of your attention, if you mind the spirit. And the alternative is what we've already said, to become a monster. To become the kind of person who would do anything. Hurt anybody. To keep your reputation intact. But secondly, not only an emotional, psychological peace, but when Paul says life and peace, I think he's referring that, that the gospel can produce a relational peace in your life. Also, because see, if you, if you start to really get your head around the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, then there are no longer good guys and bad guys. The gospel destroys all self-righteousness, which is, in reality, the root of all conflict. And I don't know about you, I don't know if you're doing community Bible reading with us, but I, I can't let this pass without saying something about it, because I was so struck this week in re- reading Romans 13 and 14. Paul says twice, at the end of Romans 13, and at the beginning of Romans 14, he says, Christians don't quarrel. You ought to come to my denominational um, meetings. Christians don't quarrel. And what he does is he links quarrel with jealousy. He says, don't, don't allow jealousy to cause you to quarrel. And jealousy is really wounded self-righteousness. And, and what he says in Romans 14, if you read it, it's marvelous. He says, what, our quarreling, what, our, what the self-righteousness that produces quarreling in our lives does is it causes us to constantly be passing judgment on one another and, and just despising one another for the different, you know, how we are different from one another. <laughs> there is now no condemnation. Whoo, I like that. I'm going to judge you. Do you see how incongruous those things are? And so there is now no condemnation should cause us to stop condemning one another. 
And instead, listen and try to understand and to, Paul says, serve one another in our disagreements with one another. Can you imagine that? Can we be a people like that? If we keep the gospel in focus, we can. So there's no, no motivation by, by need to prove I'm right. No self-righteousness operating in my life. And so my, my conflict becomes completely different. Paul's saying, this is the life and the peace. Emotional, psychological peace. Relational peace. Life. The kind of life we're meant to live. See? A truth. There is now no condemnation that brings a power into your life that requires a practice of minding the spirit that produces the fruit of life and peace. That's the gospel. Let's pray together this morning, okay? Thank you, Father, for this good word. Despite and over against all of our doubts and fears that indeed you do love us in Christ Jesus. And so I pray for those in the room this morning who have gone about their lives and have forgotten the truth that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And so they live with shaking knees and quaking spirits. And I pray that you would come and that you would solidify in their heart and mind the reality of, of your singing over them with love. I pray that as, as, as we close this service out, that they would hear your voice delighting in singing over them and that it would produce radical courage in them. But I pray for those who are here and have forgotten the truth of the gospel of grace and have become self-righteous and smug and condescending. And I, I ask that you lead those of us like that, like me, to repentance this morning as well and call us back to the truth of the love that you have for us, but not because we deserve anything, but because and for the sake of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, would you come? Make us wise to know how to put these things in practice. And would you produce the fruit of life and peace in us? So that as we live our life together in the city you've called us to, the city might take notice of the beautiful works that we do in love towards one another and in sacrificial love towards them, that they might come to know Jesus Christ. They might put their faith in him, that you might be glorified in the fruit that we bear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, then this benediction uh, is yours. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let the truth of that sink into your heart until it drains your life of all self-regard, self-preoccupation, self-pity, self-focus. And then beg God for the Spirit to go and to be faithful to what he's called you to. That's the promise of this benediction. All of that wrapped up in these words. And so receive this as you now go uh, to live a life of mission for his sake and to bear fruit that will glorify him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.